How do you do, Mrs. Wiley? Perhaps one of the most famous quotes in TV history. Ernest T. Bass, the intriguing Mayberry character on the Andy Griffith show, was trying to clean up his act, trying to straighten up a little bit, trying to go from a a backwoods hillbilly to a real polished gentleman. And he was trying to put it all together. And he tried real hard. But Miss Wiley eventually figured out that Ernest T. was not really Andy's cousin from Raleigh. But it was just crazy old Ernest T. cleaned up and dressed up. And when she realized this, she looked and very loudly at Ernest T. said, Oh, no, it's him, that animal, that creature. To which Ernest T. shouted back at her, Who you calling creature? Y'all know this moment. If you don't know this moment, please, this week, go start watching Andy Griffith. I think there's seven seasons. The seventh was in color, not as good. It's better in black and white. But, but go look and go watch. See, the sad part about this scene in this show was that Ernest T. and Miss Wiley both were not understanding reality. In a sense, they were both creatures. They both were creatures. According to the etymological definition, they were a thing created. They were a living being. They didn't just suddenly appear in Mayberry one day. They had a starting point in life. They were creatures. They were living beings. Here's the interesting thing about being a creature, though. It can be dangerous. Being a a living being and a creature can be dangerous. Now, I'm not talking about just, you know, getting dropped off in a in a jungle with a bunch of wild animals and and all you have is a box of Cracker Jacks and you're really hoping there's more than a secret decoder ring in that box to kind of help you out in the jungle. No, it's it's more dangerous than that. The the danger that can come to us as a a creature, as as a living being, is actually more connected to creature comforts. It means when we put a a whole lot of confidence in, in who we are, or in what we have accomplished, or in what we own. And what's wrong with having confidence like that in those things? Well, it can make us sick. That kind of confidence and and those kinds of things can make us sick. How sick? Well, let's see if we can find out. About 700 years before Jesus was born, there was a prophet, and his name was Isaiah. Isaiah lived in a nation that was very prosperous. Financially, they were prosperous. Culturally, they were prosperous. They had an amazing infrastructure of roads and buildings. They had a world-class, cutting-edge military, unlike anything else in the known world at the time. But for all of their prosperity, they were poor spiritually. The nation had been drifting and, and fading spiritually for some time. And then everything changed. Their prosperous king died. And Isaiah was divinely called to start telling the people that they needed to turn to God. But the people did not turn to God. They just continued on their way. And eventually they fell prey to another nation that had been getting stronger and stronger. 
The first 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah are kind of like a a sentence of conviction for the sin and the rebellion of the nation. And then the next three chapters after that, well, they're describing these sobering images of what was going to happen when the nation lost her identity. Don't miss that connection there. The nation began to lose their identity because of their sin. It was their sin. See, what happened was they were supposed to be the people of God, but, but they decided that honoring God was not that big of a priority anymore. So they made it less of a priority in their homes and in their churches and in their businesses and in their places of work and school. They made it less of a priority to honor God. And what they gave more attention to was their sin. On the outside, they looked super prosperous, and they were. But on the inside, they were getting weaker and weaker and weaker in the things that matter the most. How does that happen? Well, simply put, if a nation begins to fade or drift spiritually, it actually begins at home. Home meaning your own heart, or home meaning your own family. Just as believers, let's, let's just kind of toss out a couple of questions for our own hearts. Are we in the practice of raising kids and grandkids that are strong in Christ, or are we in the habit of raising kids that make good grades and get a good education and get a good job and have good benefits and are good moral people and go to good churches? See, what we need to do is we need to be strong in Christ, and then we also need to be diligent students at school, and we need to be faithful employees at work, and we need to love our neighbors in the same way that we love ourselves, and we need to serve in the community in such a way that there is a positive impact through us in the lives of others. But if we only do the other stuff and we're not strong in Christ, we actually are contributing to the spiritual drift and the spiritual fading of our nation. A spiritual drift like that, here's what it leads to. It it leads to people losing sight of true hope. Isaiah was preaching to people who needed some true hope. And so he has a message for them from God, and it's a message of hope and it's a message of comfort. So how does he comfort them? What kind of comfort are we talking about? Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. Okay? (laughs) Isaiah is going to comfort the people by saying this. Hey, you know what? Stuff dies. Wow, that's comforting, right? Boy, that's a fantastic sermon he's got going already. Stuff dies. Here's what's interesting, though. Reality actually is a great way to give us hope. King David said this, Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. (laughs) The place where we were no longer acknowledges we were there. Man, super comforting, right? Boy, there's a lot of hope in that sentence. Man, Isaiah is right on the right path, right? Let me see if I can put that in a little more practical terms. I was listening to a sermon 
a few months ago, and the pastor said something like this. He said, you know, the reality is when you quit your job or if you retire from your job, they're probably not going to name the building after you. (laughs) Probably true. He said, and they're probably going to go hire someone a lot younger than you, and they're going to pay them a lot less money than they were paying you. And if you go back in five or ten years, there may be nobody in that office that even knows who you are. Boy, this thing's getting more encouraging by the moment, right? Man, just lots of hope, lots of comfort here. All right, let's, let's keep the comfort train rolling here. King David also said this in Psalm 39. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. One of the most powerful kings that ever lived on the planet one day was reading the truth of God And he made a little note in his journal, Lord, teach me to number my days. Lord, teach me to know that I will not always be alive on this earth. And then he went on to say this in verses 5 and 6. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. (laughs) Breath or phantom. Now, someone's thinking, man, this sermon's getting worse by the sentence. This is like having to watch The Phantom Menace. This is terrible. Please move along. Like three and a half of y'all got that. It's okay. No big deal. I promise the good news is coming, but let's kind of own this statistic for a moment. One out of every one person dies. That's, that's the truth of life. Our life at best, according to many places in the Bible, at best is a a breath, a vapor, a phantom. I mean, if we live 40 years or, or 90 years, that's still a small point in all of history. And this is what Isaiah is using to encourage people. This is what he's using to, to give them comfort. This is what he's using to give them hope. How in the world would that ever bring anybody up. How is the concept that your days are numbered ever comforting or something that would bring us hope? Well, the truth is, at first, it won't be. It doesn't sound comforting to us at first. Why? Well, because we're, we're a little too much in love with the world. We are. We're just a little too much in love with this life. We're, we're a little too close for comfort. See, we, we can't be comforted in any discussions about life ending on this earth because we think life on this earth is the only thing there is. We are too comfortable and too in love with this life. And that's exactly what Isaiah is drawing us into. He, he's wanting us to see how temporary and how transient our lives really are. He's wanting us to know that that our grass and our flowers and our our house and our cars and our jobs and our education, they're they're temporary, they're they're transient. He wants us to know that our vacations and our Labor Day weekends, our favorite sports teams, they are temporary, they are transient. He wants us to know that our church and our jobs, our cities, our states, Our health, our friends, our family, 
They're all temporary. They're all transient. He wants us to see the reality that those things are blessings. He wants us to know that that life is worth the living because he lives and because he's given us these blessings. He wants us to know that all of those transient things, even like the coolest grass in the world, if you're a a good yard person, that that all of those things are are good and great and grand and, and wonderful gifts from God. He wants us to know that they are fantastic and terrific, the absolute best. And he wants us to know that none of those things will last forever. How is that comforting? How does that bring hope? Isaiah's going to tell us. Listen to the next part of verse 8. But the word of our God stands forever. So your grass will not stand forever. It won't even stand for another month or two, right? The flowers will not stand forever. Your house will not stand forever. Your car will not stand forever. Your job will not stand forever. Your school will not stand forever. Your favorite sports team will not stand forever. Just ask the Baltimore Colts or the the Boston Bean Eaters, all right? Your favorite sports team will not last forever. Your current president will not stand forever. Your current police chief will not stand forever. Your current pastor will not stand forever. Our church, our city, our state, our county, our country will not stand forever. There's only one thing in the universe that will ever stand forever, and that is the Word of God. That's what stands forever. So what does that mean? Does that mean if a hurricane's coming, we we take our Bible and we we stand on our Bible or we hold it over our head, and if we do that, then that means that the storm will pass us by? No. What it means when we say that the Word of God stands forever is this. Only God is holy, holy, holy. Only God is other, other, other. There is absolutely no one like Him anywhere. He existed before the universe began. So he's in a class by himself. His greatness, his beauty, his majesty, his grandeur, his power, his authority, no one else has anything like it and no one else ever will. God is the only person who can legitimately wear a t-shirt that says, I'm kind of a big deal. Because he is. Someone might say this about you. You know what? He's a man of his word. That's great. We need to be men and women who are trustworthy. People need to know that they can trust what we say. But this is what the psalmist writes about God and his word. Psalm 33, verse 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I was in the kitchen a few nights ago, it's probably about midnight, and I was starving. And there was nothing low-carby for me to eat anywhere in the kitchen, at least not that was going to be quick. And I was like, man, it'd be great if I could just put a plate out on the counter, just close my eyes and say, grilled pork belly. So it is written, so it shall be done. And then open my eyes and pork belly on the plate. That, that would have been really cool the other night, actually. That, that would have been fantastic. But you know, I can't do that. 
And you can't do that. Here's the thing, though. When it comes to the perfect sovereign power of God, he's been doing that, he's done that, and he will do it forever and ever and ever. He alone is by himself in his majesty and his power and his glory. There is no one like him. We might be people of our word, but God's word spoke the world into existence. So he wins. He wins. God's word, his, his rules, his ways, his attitudes, his actions, his thoughts, his character, his nature, everything about who he is, it stands forever. It existed before time began, and it will exist to infinity and beyond. So when we're reading the Bible, it really is a big deal. Why? Because we are filling our hearts and our minds with truth that will last forever. It will stand forever. It stood for our great, 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 great grandparents, and it will stand for our great, 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 great grandchildren. The word of the Lord stands forever. The news changes every day. Your horoscope changes every day. The menu at the cafeteria changes every week. The church bulletin changes every week. The calendar changes every year. The, the team's media guide changes every year. But the Word of God, designed by Him to be put in the pages of the Bible, that Word stands forever. Forever. So what does that look like in real life? John Piper puts it in a parable. Listen to this parable. Once upon a time in a land before there were any cars or modern machines, a, a time when horses and carriages and wagons were common on the dirt roads, there was a blacksmith shop with a large, heavy, well-worn anvil. One day, a little farm boy who had never left the farm, he came with his father to town for the first time. Everything was new and different. As he walked with his father down the unpaved main street, he heard a loud clang, clang, clang. He said to his father, what's that? His father said, come, I'll, I'll show you. He took his son to the door of the blacksmith's shop, and there the boy saw a huge man, a strong man, lifting a big, heavy hammer with a long handle and a large head on it. And he was lifting it high in the air as if to chop down a tree and then crashing it down on a glowing piece of metal on top of the anvil. He hit the anvil so hard that it made the boy wince with every blow. His father explained to him that this was a blacksmith who made all kinds of metal pieces for wagons and carriages and plows and tools and horseshoes. But the little boy was fixed on one thing, the long, heavy hammer and the great metal anvil. They met each other with such a loud sound and with such a force that he thought surely this anvil could not last long. The big, strong blacksmith paused for a moment to catch his breath, and he saw the boy standing in the doorway. Aren't you going to break that thing? The boy asked, pointing at the anvil. But the blacksmith smiled and said, This anvil is a hundred years old and has worn out 
many hammers. What does that parable have to do with the Word of God? Piper explains. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers, and every generation new huge heavy hammers are forged against the truth of the Bible. And strong men lift the hammers, and they pound on Scripture. People with no historical perspective, like little boys who've never been to town, they see it and say, surely the Bible will be destroyed. But others who know their history a little better say, this Bible was forged in the furnace of divine truth, and it has worn out many hammers. We have every reason to be confident in the Word of God. Why does the Bible keep lasting? Why does it keep making it past so many generations? Well, kind of like Billy Graham, it sticks to the story, right? The Bible just sticks to, to one story. It just sticks to the main things. God, sin, Jesus, salvation. It doesn't get sidetracked with all the other stuff. It doesn't get sidetracked with, you know, with Christian traditions. It doesn't get sidetracked with contemporary Christian fads. It doesn't get sidetracked with political parties or political correctness. It doesn't get sidetracked with religious denominations. It doesn't get sidetracked with spiritual revolutions. Not just, it keeps to the same place keeps to the same story about the glory of God displayed in the universe most perfectly through Jesus who made a way for you to have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, the Bible, it just keeps hammering out the same truths. God, sin, Jesus, salvation. It never strays from the story. That's why it keeps lasting. And it keeps standing the test of time because it's full of truth from the only God who was and is and is to come. So we have every reason to be confident because there is no other God like that whose word has that kind of power. So maybe you're, you're with me up until this point. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm cool with the Bible, okay. I think the Bible's a pretty incredible book and all right, it's... It's got this truth from God. But but, but what about what we said earlier? How how does this bring us hope? How does it bring us comfort? Well, if you've received God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, this is the hope of God's word standing forever. It means this. It means you are not just a breath. You are not just a vapor. You are not just a phantom. You are a child of the one true God whose truth stands forever. That changes the math of your life. Spurgeon put it this way, the truth of God will never shake nor be moved come what may. You never need to be alarmed. And then he goes on. If all the kings and emperors and cardinals and popes and priests and great men and mighty men and merchants and mobs and crowds should rise against the Lord's truth and against the Lord's anointed, 
what would it matter? He goes on, who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die? And the son of man that is but a worm, the grass in the field, why let it boast? And he says this, what cares the king with his army about the grass? Why, he says, the steeds of my cavalry shall eat the grass. It shall soon be gone. So God shall overthrow all their show of strength. And then he makes this powerful statement. In an hour, if so God willed it, he could convert the world. In a single hour, if so it pleased him, dominant superstitions would be relinquished and the old systems of idolatry would totter to their fall. He can do it like that. Why? Because his word stands forever. Superstitions don't stand forever. The greatest religious and mystical and emotional leaders in the world will not stand forever. Whatever the dominant reason is for the problems in your life from the world of psychology was one thing 20 years ago and it's another thing today and it'll be something different 20 years from now. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. It's why we put our hope and our confidence in him. But what about our nation? What about America? I mean, doesn't it seem like our, our country is, is falling apart spiritually, drifting and fading spiritually? Yeah, it does. Shouldn't the church of God, shouldn't we be sad? Shouldn't we grieve that this is happening? Yes, we should. Should the church of God be mad or afraid or alarmed? Why? Because the word of the Lord stands forever. It's our confidence. It's our hope. Spurgeon goes on. And so surely when you begin to say, the church is in danger, the church is in danger, what is that to you? The church stood before you were born. It will stand when you have become worm's meat. We don't use that a lot in casual language, maybe for a reason. And he says this, this is what we do. Keep in the path of obedience and fear not. He who made the church knew through what trials she would have to pass. And he made her so that she can endure the trials and become the richer for it. You know when the doors of this church will close? When we quit believing that the word of the Lord stands forever. And then close the doors as fast as we can. When we quit holding to the truth of God's word as our first and ultimate confidence. When we forget and choose to ignore worshiping Jesus Christ first and most. Shut it down, lock the doors, and go away. But friend, as long as the name of Jesus is lifted up, as long as the truth of God's word is our confidence, we have value in this world. We give value to this community because we are offering the hope of a truth that stands forever. Spurgeon says this too. 
The enemy, it's but grass. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's our confidence. Yes, the grass withers. Yes, the flower fades. But oh, we're, we're not putting our confidence in being yard of the month. We're not putting our confidence in having our, our, our rose garden look like the rose gardens at the Biltmore. Now we're putting our ultimate confidence in the truth of God. But what about you? Do you feel like you're spiritually fading? Do you feel like you're spiritually drifting? Do you feel like that, that maybe the danger of your trials and your troubles, you feel like they're about to overtake you or overwhelm you? Are you too close to the world, too comfortable with the world, too close for comfort to be encouraged with the hope that comes from the glory of God in the face of Jesus? If you've never turned from your sin, if you've never received grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if you've never received that kind of salvation, then the word of the Lord that stands forever has one very consistent message throughout to share. But if you are not in Christ, there is no hope and there is no comfort to offer. But if you turn to Jesus, if you repent of your sin, if you receive his salvation, salvation that is defined and built on the word of the Lord, which stands forever, which means your salvation would stand forever. So we plead with you to come to Jesus because the truth of Jesus stands forever. What does the promise of salvation Jesus sound like in real life? Well, Moses had died and Joshua was taking his place. And so this is what God said to him. Joshua 1 verse 5. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. One more thought from Spurgeon. Oh, Christian, how you may go tonight to your Bible and read out the promise and find it as new to you and as true to you as if an angel came from heaven to bring it in fresh language from the divine throne. That's a cool way to read your Bible tonight. Right? <laughs> I'm going to read as if an angel is coming to tell me this right now. That's, that's how fresh and true God's word is. And then Spurgeon says this. i just give you some reference. He preached what I'm about to read to you on a Thursday night. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, you know. A Thursday night, November 26, 18, 1868, 150 years ago. All right? 150 years ago, he made this statement. And I say that because he could have made it five minutes ago. This is what he said. You've lost your child, your husband is gone, your property has melted, your health declines, you draw near to death, but the promise, the promise is still yours. A promise. What, 
what promise invades every moment of a believer's life? This, this is the promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am God. I change not. That promise will never fail. It will never change. So the reason we say that the word of the Lord stands forever is a fantastic message of hope and comfort is because it reminds us that we serve a God who cannot fail, who will not forsake his own, and his truth never changes. And so may God get us close to that so that that truth would comfort our soul today and tomorrow and all the days of our lives.